Why is the prosecution so afraid of allowing cameras in the Lori Vallow and Chad Day Bell matters? Could it be 3.6 million reasons? Alec Murdoch files his appeal. Was the firearm in the Alec Baldwin case destroyed? Letitia Stouck's attorneys are told that orders are that, not requests. Sometimes you have to know when to run and um, the fan that nobody wants and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, hit that little bell, and remember to leave me a comment below. And remember, you can always listen to us anytime or any of our previous catalog at any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in Crime Talk with Scott Reich. And let's not forget, we have to support the people that help support Crime Talk. Go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for that background subscription today. Listen, you need to know the truth. Information is power. You need to check people out before you get involved with them. Do a background search. Go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for that background subscription service. You'll be able to get a report literally while you wait. You're gonna find out if, well, they're telling you the truth. Are they married? Are they divorced? Do they have a criminal history? Are they on one of those public registries, if you know what I mean? Do they have judgments against them? Is the tax man gonna come take their house? Those are the type of things you want to know. Listen, if someone's coming into your life, maybe a boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe you're just not getting that warm, fuzzy feeling by you know, the friends that your uh, kids are bringing home, check them out, crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for the docket for March 10th of 2023. So why is the prosecution so afraid of allowing cameras in the Lori Vallow and Chad Day Bell matters? Could it be 3.6 million reasons thus far? All right, let's give credit where credit is due. Nate Easton of East Idaho News took it upon himself and requested all of the costs to date to prosecute Lori Val and Chad DeBell. And what did they uncover? That the number will only grow given the uh, cases have now been severed, but Lori Val's trial will begin on April 3rd of 2023. Chad DeBell's new trial date has not yet been obviously rescheduled yet, but Madison County, the city of Rexburg and Fremont County provided an estimated cost of the cases between late 2019 and December of 2022. Madison County has spent approximately $416,520. The city of Rexburg spent $1,465,701. And Fremont County has spent another $1,750,000. So three years, three jurisdictions, $3,632,221, and that number is going to continue to grow. The next question is, what cost $3.6 million? Well, Fremont County is uh, currently paying all public defense fees, but at the end of the trials, Madison County is supposed to chip in a little bit as well. Well, I can guarantee you the public defenders representing Lori Vallow have not received $3.6 million. The bulk of that is the cost of prosecution. There you go. So um, as you know, three years ago when the kids went missing, Lori and Chad run off to uh, Hawaii to get married. 
Lori Vallow is returned to the great state of Idaho regarding the uh, charges of abandonment of her two children, JJ and Ty Lee. Then the abuse of corpse charges come around when, that's right, the bodies of JJ and Ty Lee are found on Chad Day Bell, yep, Lori Vallow's new husband, found on his property. Then the murder charges are turned into a death penalty case. And so, like I said, the estimated cost could be five to six million dollars with two trials. Hmm, is this why the prosecution doesn't want cameras in the courtroom? If they blunder this case, as they seem to have done along the way, and uh, it, I wouldn't want the world watching me either. But the reality of it is, and I've said this many times, never have I seen a case tried in secret. Now, I mean, the trial is going to be in public and everything that was so secretive will now be able to come out at trial. But of course, the only way you can see the trial is if you actually go to the courtroom, if you can get a seat on the waiting list, or you can go to the overflow courtroom, either in Ada or Madison County, if you can get on the wait list. So everything that has been in secret is now going to come out. Well, my goodness, shouldn't we keep that secret? Because Chad Bell isn't he entitled to a fair trial as well? Yeah, their argument fails. There's nothing that's going to be so scary and so prejudicial to any one side in this particular case that it's going to come tumbling down on the prosecution and the judge. All right. To be more exact, all right, in chambers or close to the courtroom. That's what I've never seen done before. Now, you don't kick the public out anywhere I've ever practiced law. That includes military tribunals, state court, and at least six different federal jurisdictions over the years. The only exception that I can think of where I have seen or participated in where the doors have closed and it's where it's what they refer to as ex parte, meaning only one party is there. And it was usually a defense attorney, the defendant and the court. And there was a hearing as to whether there was an actual conflict in the case, which obviously the prosecution and the public wouldn't need to know about. Everything else is done in public. Now, I think we've also seen recently in the Alec Murdoch trial that you can conduct a trial that has a lot of sensationalism around it as long as you have a strong judge. And that case was pretty much flawless when it came to the press with one minor glitch at the very end. But it's not enough to ban trials. Anyway, I hope the defense is objecting to this in-chambers uh, private courtroom. The prosecution should be doing it as well. Remember, the prosecution has a duty to protect the record. Their job is to follow the law and not ask that they be excused from following the law. And I've seen good prosecutors where a judge has suggested something and the defense kind of says, you can't do that. And the prosecutor will say, judge, you can't do that. And the prosecutor will say, I wish you could do that for me, judge, but that's just not right. Now, remember, the Sixth Amendment, you know, it's kind of important. The Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. 
Now, obviously what that means is, is a speedy and public trial. That's what we're talking about. In Idaho, six months to a statutory right to a speedy trial. We know Lori Vallow's already outside of that because the court kept the case with Chad DeBell together. Well, now they've severed it. Hmm, does the court have a problem on speedy trial? Potentially, the court hasn't ruled on the defense motion to dismiss for speedy trial. I don't think the court will dismiss this case on those grounds. But then we have the right, as it's found, to a public trial. And the courts have found that the public also has a right to a speedy resolution and a right to a public trial. Now, I know Judge Boyce has finally started doing orders articulating why he thinks keeping everything is secret, and that's to protect a fair trial. That's not the legal standard when it comes to an actual trial date. There's nothing that is so egregious or so of such a privacy interest that's not going to come out at trial that shouldn't have been discussed in open court. We've talked about this before. The standard is, can you obtain 12 jurors who, even if they've heard something about the case, are willing to push aside whatever they've heard and listen to the evidence that's presented in court and base their decisions based upon that and the legal instructions that are given to the court. Now, Lori and Chad, let's face it, they're likely to be convicted despite the prosecution's best efforts. Then the appeals begin. And all of these issues that we've been talking about, I assure you, the defense is going to raise them on appeal. Idaho needs to fix their system. And what I mean by that is they need to fix it so that the trial judge's order saying that there'll be no audio or video recordings of the proceedings cannot be appealed. That is ridiculous. Um, I think a lot of people should argue over there in Idaho that that is basically a, a violation of the public's right to a fair and speedy public trial. Additionally, it uh, goes against um, just fundamental fairness. The world has a right to know. The world has a right to see how we conduct our courts. And the best way to do that is when people see cases of interest to make sure that it is fair. And what I mean by that is look at the cases where there have been high-profile cases, and everyone said, oh, my goodness, the city's going to burn if, if, if injustice is not done. Everybody had an opportunity to watch it, right? The Derek Chauvin trial, everybody had a chance to watch it. Kyle Rittenhouse, people had a chance to watch it. Look at the evidence. That's the best way to do it. Transparency is the best thing for the courts, not secrecy. That's when people start getting nervous, paranoid, and start coming up with theories as to why does the court not want everybody to know what's taking place. Something to think about, Idaho. Something to think about. Next on the docket, Alec Murdoch appeals. That's right. We knew it was coming. His lawyers filed the motion to appeal his conviction. And obviously, that's for the conviction of the murder of his wife and son. He was obviously sentenced last week to two consecutive life sentences after he was found guilty for shooting his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, on their hunting estate back on June 7th of 2021. Now, the big issue on appeal that I see from watching the trial is the court allowing in the 404B evidence, specifically the bad character evidence that the court allowed in when Jim Griffin asked about good character for Alex Murdoch. The court said that opened the door to all the financial crimes. Now, I am not sure that it was all warranted for all of that evidence to come in as it relates to financial crimes. I think the court should have limited the questions by the prosecution to testing the basis of the opinion. 
but not then bringing in extrinsic evidence to prove bad character. That's what the defense argued the day that it was brought in and day after day after day after it was brought in. Let me give you an example. So when Jim Griffin asked the witness on the stand that said, Alec Murdoch's a good guy, good father. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The prosecution on cross-examination then should have been allowed to ask, well, you say he's got good character being a good dad and honest guy. Are you aware that he did all of these things? You don't get to then prove through extrinsic evidence all of the bad things. You get to test the basis of it. You say, no, I wasn't aware of that. No, I wasn't aware of that. Or I was, but it hasn't changed my mind. That's the extent of it. That is going to be the big issue on appeal. But then the question becomes, well, Alec Murdoch testified, so does it really matter? The defense will probably say, well, we were forced into that given the court allowing in all that bad character evidence. However, I think the appellate courts are going to say, yeah, but he has a right to remain silent, and that would have been even more prejudicial, and you could have made the record to do that. And let's face it, I also think the SOB rule is going to come here. Um, the SOB rule is not something you're going to find in courts. The SOB rule is something you're going to find from attorneys that have practiced a long time, like myself. And it's going to come out, although there was error, we find that it was harmless in light of the overwhelming evidence in the case. That's the SOB rule, ladies and gentlemen. There was error, but we all know we did it. So denied. Next on the docket, did the government destroy the gun in the Alec Baldwin case? Well, the attorneys for Alec Baldwin claimed that the gun the actor used when he fatally shot cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the movie set that the government destroyed it. Alex Spiro, the attorney for Alec Baldwin, dropped this little bombshell uh, in the case during a hearing conducted virtually and streamed on YouTube by the court on Thursday. He said, quote, I think I should tell the court that the firearm in this case, that's a great subject of it, was destroyed by the state, he stated. So that's an obvious issue that the court's going to have to deal with in the future. Now, the first judicial district attorney's office denied the allegation, said the gun is in evidence and is available for the defense to review. Now, you remember in the Alec Murdoch case, they also said that he had high velocity blood spatter on the shirt, which was destroyed. Oops. Yeah, these kind of things happen. What happens when you destroy evidence? Ooh, then you get a motion saying motion to dismiss. You destroyed evidence. Anyway, let's continue on. Now, the defense's uh, statement in the uh, status hearing that the state had destroyed the gun may be referencing a statement by the FBI, apparently, that dates back to July of uh, 2022 when they did the firearm testing. And in that report said that uh, it was damage was done to the internal components during the FBI's functionality testing. Huh. So the FBI broke the gun testing the gun. Or did they really? Hmm. Anyway... The gun is apparently still in evidence, and it can be used as evidence, according to the prosecutor. Anyway, uh, Mr. Spiro added that he'd like to be able to take a look at whatever is left of the firearm. Perhaps he's exaggerating just a bit. He's always maintained, uh, Alec Baldwin has always maintained that he did not pull the trigger and that the gun just fired spontaneously. He insists it was the armor's responsibility to ensure the gun was safe before handling it. And, uh, well, the prosecution in New Mexico and the FBI ever say it would have been impossible for the gun to fire uh, without him 
pulling the trigger. Him, of course, being Alec Baldwin. They say he had been uh, pulling the trigger on the same gun in earlier rehearsals and practices. And Baldwin has already settled um, several civil lawsuits brought by Helena's widow. Her family in Ukraine is now suing him separately, basically saying that uh, if you hadn't killed our daughter, we'd be in America by now. I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think that one is a little bit of a stretch. Well, wait and see if the gun is produced. Has it been destroyed? Has it been damaged by the government? You have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, people working for the government, as they used to always tell us in the military, all that gear you're wearing, that's right, from the lowest bidder. Remember that. Next on the docket, Letitia Stouk. It's an order, counsel. That's right. Court orders. It's not a suggestion, the judge said. It's not a guideline. It's not a hope. It's a deadline. That's what Judge uh, Warner told the defense about stressing to the doctor about preparing his report and getting it to the court in a timely manner. Judge Gregory Warner set what he called a hard deadline for Letitia Stouk's defense for 5 p.m. on March 16th to submit the report. The jury selection is begin on March 20th, opening statements on April 3rd. And the prosecution said, hey, if the document arrives too late, they are probably going to ask that the expert be excluded as a witness from testifying, which means they probably won't have a not guilty by reason of insanity defense. Listen, Letitia Stauk has messed this case up so bad for herself. Um, whatever is going to happen, this is going to be a long, slow guilty plea. Anyway. Apparently, the doctor the writing the report has only sent preliminary impressions with no final conclusion. Now, the state also noted two other doctors did meet with her during uh, this pretrial period. In addition to the mental report, the defense also wants Ms. Stauk to undergo an MRI. That statement has delay written all over it. Sounds like they better get that done. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. The good news on the Letitia Stout case is it'll be broadcast on the court's website feed. Now, uh, Miss Letitia Stauk is choosing to wear her orange prison clothes at trial and not civilian clothes. Now, that is completely her choice, but tell me you're guilty without telling me you're guilty. Yeah, showing up in your orange prison suit, that pretty much does it. Now, Letitia Stauk is the woman accused of fatally attacking and killing her stepson, Gannon Stauk, in his bedroom back in January of 2020 in El Paso County. That's here in Colorado Springs. Now, police claim to find blood on the mattress walls and floors, as well as in the defendant's Volkswagen SUV. Now, the deputies believe the defendant acted suspiciously when the child was reported missing. She also allegedly told them that Gannon went to play at a friend's house, but she was unable to tell them the friend's name or the home's location. Letitia Stalk then allegedly claimed to investigators back on January 29th that a man named Eduardo sexually assaulted her and then kidnapped Gannon. Authorities didn't buy this story either. They said she didn't call 911 about her account and she didn't want to look into collecting evidence against her alleged attacker. Police also alleged that she fled the state and was arrested in Myrtle Beach. Uh, South Carolina. Obviously, she did flee the state, but that goes to consciousness of guilt. Now, Letitia Stauk switched her plea to not guilty because of insanity back in February of 2022, resulting in pushing back her original March 28th, 2022 trial date. Um, 
And as noted, the court the other day showed no sign of wanting to push the trial back again. This case, like I said, is going to be a long, slow, guilty plea. Now, we've discussed the original affidavit in the Letitia Stout case when she was originally arrested and the affidavit was unsealed. She gave at least 15 different versions of events, all that, well, the prosecution is going to be easily be able to show um, were not accurate. Next on the docket, sometimes you got to know when to run. Remember that Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler? He summed up criminal defense pretty well there. I know he's talking about gambling, but it's analogous to this. Sometimes you have to know when to hold them. You have to know when to fold them. You have to know when to walk away. And sometimes you have to know when to run. Well, please meet Ed Villalobos. Apparently, he had assessed his case for trial. And guess what he decided to do? Yeah, take a look at this footage. It shows the moment uh, this murder suspect ran out of an Oregon courthouse after deputies unshackled him. Ed Villalobos was scheduled to start trial on February 27th for allegedly stabbing his mother and her partner before knifing an unrelated man just two hours later, leading to police engaging in a pursuit that lasted uh, hours back in 2021. But when a sheriff's deputy unshackled his wrists and ankles, guess what? He stood up, pushed a chair in, and ran. Take a look at that. Run, Ed, run. Deputies had left a clear, obvious route of escape, and police only caught up with him a two hours later after a little manhunt when someone reported that a man was trying to break into an apartment. Hmm. I guess past performance is indicative of future results, some say. Huh. Anyway, Mr. Villalobos is now back in custody and is going to face additional charges on top of his murder and stabbing charges. That's right. Next, the fans that nobody wants. A Texas truck driver killed a Seattle podcast host and has been stalking her and her husband. And last night he climbed in through a window into their $1.6 million suburban home. The Redmond, Washington Police Department say that Zoe Zadegi was shot and killed by trucker Raman Kodazarkamedzi, K-H-O-D-A-K-A-R-A-M-R-E-Z-A-E-I. Common spelling last night. Anyway, Zadegi's husband, Mohammed Nasiri, was also killed. Police say that Kohabadazimezi was a listener and became so obsessed with her and that uh, she had to file a restraining order against him, which just shows you how useless restraining orders are. Anyway, court records show there was also a warrant for his arrest on the charges of telephone stalking and stalking. The criminal complaint was filed against him last week. And at 2 a.m., like I said, he broke into their home, shooting her and her husband before turning the gun on himself. The woman's mother escaped and called 911 immediately. It's unclear whether he was in the area or if he drove from Texas to Washington for the sole purpose of attacking her. I'm going to go with that one. She had also uh, recently reported him to the police. The man started um, tuning into her podcast uh, several months ago and then started barraging her with messages. She had uh, contacted police and authorities were preparing to serve him with the restraining order, but were having trouble pinning down his location. Now, I've had threats as an attorney, okay? Nothing from fans or not many fans, so to speak, uh, of our YouTube show. Um, and just remember, at the Reich household, uh, we shoot first and ask questions later. 
with things that go bump in the night. Just saying to all the people that don't like me. Just saying. Anyway, next, our dumb criminal of the day. Listen, who hasn't thought of this? We were actually talking about this in court today, but let me tell you more. A Utah man was desiring to go to federal prison, and uh, he carried out a polite bank robbery in pursuit of that goal. Per the affidavit, Donald Santa Croce, he's 65, he was arrested after allegedly handing a teller at a Wells Fargo bank in downtown Salt Lake City. He handed her note, said, please, pardon me for doing this, but this is a robbery. Please give me $1. Thank you. That's what the teller reported. Anyway, Santa Croce uh, then was asked to uh, leave the bank. Anyway, the affidavit says that he instead instructed her to call the police and sat in a bank lobby chair waiting for the police. He even complained that it was a taking a while for the police to arrive. Anyway, when they ultimately did arrive, Mr. Santa Croce reportedly alleged handed over the $1 to police. And um, Mr. Santa Croce said he had done this because he wants to go and get arrested and go to federal prison. He stated that if he gets out of jail, he will rob another bank and ask for more money next time, trying to desire to get his result of going to federal prison. Well, guess what, sir? You are going to federal prison. But under the federal sentencing guidelines, $1 is not going to give you much time. Okay? Now, I was talking about this literally in court this morning before I had actually seen this story today. And we were joking that, you know, if you ever needed maybe some medical care, maybe just need a little bit of vacation, get away from the family, right? It would be doing a polite bank robbery, go to federal prison, no guns, no violence, probably a low security level prison. Maybe meet a couple new friends. Who knows? It could all work out. But anyway, at least nobody was hurt. But anyway, Mr. Santa Croce, you are our dumb criminal of the day. But we're telling you politely, though. We're telling you politely. Anyway, have a great weekend. We hope to see you next week. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk. <music>